You don't ask, you don't get. It's amazing what the saints can do when they try. We have Michael here. We probably have some other guests here today. We want to welcome you all. And we're going to invite the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to help us to make sense of the Word of God, and more importantly, to apply it to our heart today. So let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your glorious Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one who is carrying on your work here on earth. We invite his presence to be with us in this worship service, especially as we open your word here. And Lord, help us to, to have a spirit of repentance and confession and, uh, and a spirit of gratitude in our hearts today for all of the good things, especially the sacrifice of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said? Amen. Okay, take a Bible. There are Bibles in the pews if you need one. And turn to the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And we are in chapter 21. I will give you the page reference when I find it. Page 242, 242. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9 is our passage for today. And I think I'll read, it's not a very long passage, so I think I'll read the whole thing and then just break it down. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against who? That's a dangerous thing to do. And against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, what happened? He lived. In our passage this morning, we have a large group of people, the Israelites, a nation. As you know, they've been taken out of Egypt. All sorts of um, difficulties had arisen, the main problem being their own attitude. And God had manifested his love and his care for them in many, many ways. So you need to have a little bit of that background to understand what's going on in this account that we've just read. God has a plan for his people. Do you believe that? And it's unfolded all the way through the Old Testament, and it finds its fulfillment 
in Jesus Christ. But God has a plan. He's not just going to have them walking aimlessly through this desert. He has a plan for them. And he also has provisions for them. If they need water, God will provide it. If they need food, God will provide it. If the enemy is about to attack them, as the Edomites would have done, at least they threatened that, they said, if you try and come through our land, we'll come against you with the sword. And where the enemy was there, God would protect his people if they trusted and had faith in him. If they ran ahead of the Lord, then sometimes it was a different, a different message, a different result. But if they had faith and trust in God's plan and in God's provisions, in his leadership, then things would go well with them. I hope we learn some important lessons this morning from these Israelites in the wilderness. Having lived in the Middle East for a short time, having been in the very desert where these people were traveling through, it is rough. It's dusty, it's dirty, it's something that you would quickly tire of. Now you do have Bedouins, Bedouin communities that exist in tents and they have their animals and they're able to survive in, in many of these places. They travel around and they're able to, to pretty much enjoy desert living. But desert living wouldn't be number one on my vacation trips. What about yours? Though I do remember when I was in the Middle East once, we went to uh, like a Bedouin tent. Now this was a very much a touristy thing. You had to pay to get a breakfast from them. But it very much was like a reincarnation, a reenactment of what it would have been like in biblical times. So that was very special, very memorable. And no, they didn't serve any goat's, goat's eyes or sheep's eyes uh, at that breakfast. The food was pretty good, pretty good stuff. It says there in verse 4, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. I've already told you why they couldn't go through Edom, because the Edomites would not let them. It's interesting the way that Ellen White approaches uh, even that little statement there. She said, uh, if the Edomites would have allowed the Israelites to go through there, uh, many valuable lessons would have been learned for both groups. But anyway, that didn't happen. So the people grew what? In my translation, it says impatient, restless, agitated. They're tired. They want to go into the promised land. Who can blame them? Wouldn't you want to go into the promised land if you've been tramp trampling around this desert? But remember why it was taking so long. It wasn't because God didn't want to take them through. It was because they often would fall into sin. And here's another example. 
They've been griping about the food for a long, long time. And I believe this is the last recorded gripe against the manna in Scripture. I think it is, anyway. So they grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. You know, one of the hard things is to... You might know God has a plan, and you might be grateful for His provisions, but you need the patience of the saints. Revelation 14. Here is the patience of the saints. God has His own timetable. Doesn't matter what Harold Camping says. You know who I'm talking about? The date setter. What date is it again? This month. Maybe I should preach a sermon on that. May? All right, it's May, so I have a little bit of time to think about it. May. And so many, many people are going to be disappointed. Now, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus came in April? Maybe on my birthday. But God has his own plan, his own schedule, his own timetable. And God would love to do in one day what would take many, many years if we don't cooperate with him. And in a sense, this is a new generation. We would hope that they've learned some valuable lessons. They've had many moms and dads, grandmas and grandmas who have been buried in the desert. Don't sin. Don't make the same mistakes as your parents have made. But what does the text say? They grew impatient. Red flag right there. They spoke against God. They actually blasphemed against God. This is not a small thing that they did. They blasphemed against God and against, spoke against Moses, and they said, why, oh, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Now, for those of you that don't know, when they were in Egypt, they weren't just uh, sailing up and down the Nile with somebody uh, cooling them down with a big fan and eating a nice Bedouin breakfast like I had. They were slaves. They were oppressed people. They had a really, at least their parents did, had a really, really hard life in Egypt. And I don't know what this new generation would really know about life in Egypt, but we always fantasize about the past, the good old days. So the good old days, they're trying to claim here, I don't think very convincingly, that it was better to stay in Egypt because you're going to let us die in the desert. Now, why would they draw that conclusion? I mean, what is so bad? Okay, the Edomites have refused them to come through that portion of the land, and they have to travel around. I mean, yes, it, it means uh, a longer time in the desert. It means more hardships. But hadn't God revealed enough of himself? I mean, it's, it's really amazing when you read some of these accounts. I mean, God is there every day. They have the cloud for protection. There's not a one of them that's going to get sunburned. They have the fire to guide them at night when it's dark if they have to travel through the night. They have ultimate protection from God. 
None of their shoes are wearing out. None of them are feeble. These are health reformers. They're living on the heavenly manner. They're getting their exercise every day. Balanced diet, plenty of exercise. Trusting God, what more could you ask for? But they said, no, we should have stayed in Egypt. You're going to let us die in the desert. There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest. We cannot stand. This manna stinks. This is really bad. And so what does God do? If you're going to sin against him, and you're going to sin against his servant Moses, because that's just like sinning against God when you, when you badmouth Moses. And Moses had lost Aaron. So I really feel for Moses in many of these situations. You know, it's not always easy to be a man of God, a woman of God, and to be leading people. Now he's lost Aaron. Aaron has gone up on the mountain. He's died. He's been buried. Moses comes down with Eliezer. The people, even though they're constantly, constantly in Moses' face, they're glad to see him coming down the mountain, and now they're speaking against him, and they're blaspheming against God. And there's going to be consequences. And I will put these consequences under judgment, under the umbrella of judgment, or under the umbrella of God's discipline of his people, You could call it tough love. God is doing what's best for his people. God always does what's best for his people, even though from our perspective, it can seem really harsh. And if you understand the character of God, the heart of God, the passion that he has for his people, then I think hopefully you would interpret this in as positive a way as is possible. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Now, one of the first thoughts that came in my mind when I studied this passage is, where were the snakes before this? When they're traveling around Edom, have they suddenly come into a portion of desert that's totally infested, and the rest of the desert, no snakes? No, there's no reason to think that. There's much more reason to think that God had been protecting them as they had been trusting in him. He had put a hedge around them. Now let me ask you, do you want to be hedged in by God? All of us, anyone with a half a brain would say yes to that. We want to be, if we have someone that's really looking out for our interests, then we want to be hedged in by that person. And in the Bible, that is, that person is, is God. But God, because he sees the end from the beginning, he knows what is best for his people, he can lift the hedge, so to speak. Paul talks about something similar, not using the same vocabulary, but the same idea in the book of Corinthians. There were certain church members, fly, A certain church members who Paul says have become sickly. 
and some of you have died because of the judgment of God. They had been, they had been taking the things of God and basically trampling upon them like the communion service. They would come with the wrong attitude. Maybe some of them were drunk. Maybe they wouldn't share their food. Maybe they were saying and doing foolish things. So God would bring almost like an immediate, a quick judgment upon his people. Now, I don't believe, I don't have any reason to believe that when God does that, that the believer is lost. I don't see this in terms of being saved and being lost. I see it in terms of, hey, we claim to be his people. We're either going to do things his way or we're going to do things our own way. If we do our own way, don't be surprised if the hedge is lifted. It's not a threat. It's just the reality of a loving God and his tough love knowing what is best for his people. Now, as I said to the children in the story, if you had been bitten by a fiery serpent and you could feel the pain, in, in this translation it says venomous. In the King James it says fiery. They're not quite sure what is fiery, whether it was the pain from the poison or whether it was the color of the snake, but it was probably a burning, painful sensation. And if this, if this poison is traveling through your body and you probably have a very limited time and somebody comes along and puts a huge pole up with an image of a snake on it, and by this time, of course, the text says that the people had done what? When they had sinned, what, when we sin, what are we supposed to do? Confess. We may, not, we may not be able to change anything. We usually can't when we sin. The deed is done. But we can confess. We can be repentant. And so, after the venomous snakes had bit people, many of them died, the people came to Moses. Now, let me ask you a question. For those people who came to Moses, did the tough love, love work or not? Yes, of course. Why? Because it brought them to repentance. Confession. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. And it's a very noble thing to admit that you have sinned. It is a foolish thing to deny sin. Because God will never ignore sin. No matter if it's a little one of those little white ones, or if it's a really, really bad black one, whether it's a mortal sin or a venial sin, or what, whatever other category you want to put sin into, sin always has to be dealt with. It can never, ever be ignored. There's no sin small enough that God is going to wink at it and pretend it really didn't happen. So confession is, is, they say confession is good for what? Good for the soul. That may not be a biblical statement, but it's a biblical concept. It is good. It's the right thing to do. It's something that God can deal with in his relationship with us. It opens up many doors of grace and mercy from God. So we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you, verse 7. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So here's the whole prayer of intercession. 
Aaron used to do that alongside of Moses. Now it's Moses that's going to be doing that one, one more time. And Moses has the same or a similar passion for these people as God does. He loves these people. No matter how wayward they are, he loves them. Just uh, God even more so. So Moses intercedes for them. Moses prayed for the people. And now the Lord can go into action in a different way. Make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Now, when you read the commentators on this snake on a pole, they're all over the place. Because nobody really knows why God would choose to do things this way. And maybe the smartest way of approaching this is to say, we don't know. We don't really know why God chose to take a representation of a snake, the, ones, the very one that had poisoned them, and when they looked to it, whether it says it in the text or not, they had to look in faith. It's not just enough just to, to see God. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Most people believe in some kind of God, right? But you, you see this God as the provision that he has provided, whether it even be a bronze snake on a pole, do you see, do you trust, have confidence, have faith, believe, whatever word we're going to use, do you believe and trust in that provision? Now, there were people who said no way. Maybe they were the intellectuals, maybe they were the philosophers, I don't know. But it blows my mind that you can have poison in your body and you can feel the fiery pain from that and not choose to look. This is not about understanding. I mean, I hope every person in this room has as much understanding of the things of God as is possible. But even the Apostle Paul, who had been to the third heaven, been to the paradise of God, says we see through a glass darkly. So there's many things in the ways of God we do not understand. And I'm sure throughout eternity, God in his mercy will be gracious enough to explain a lot of these things that we don't understand. But God is God, and God has got to be allowed to be God. And we don't want to box God in and make him this or make him that. So if he chooses, by way of looking at a snake, a replica of a snake on a pole, to heal people, so be. And of course, implicit in this is that by looking, you're obeying God. You're doing what God has told you to do, whether it makes sense to you or not. And the ones who looked, what was the result? They lived. Isn't that a good thing? It's a good thing to live. Life is very precious. And those who chose not to look, what happened to them? They died. They died. Miserable, horrible, painful deaths. One of the best books that you'll ever read in your whole life is Patriarchs and Prophets. And I know uh, certainly when Ben was around that uh, the midweek meeting people uh, went through that, that book. And it has a lot of very interesting ways of approaching 
these things. She says, for example, the lifting of, up of the brazen serpent was to teach Israel an important lesson. They couldn't save themselves from the fatal effect of the poison in their wounds. God alone was able to heal them, and that they were, yet they were required to show their faith in the provision which he had made. They must look in order to live. Can you see why it's not about understanding? If God says to live, you have to bury your head in the sand, then that's what we should do. If God says to live, we should climb a mountain, that's what we should do. He is the one who decides the terms of the covenant, the terms of the agreement. And so here it's, it's phrased in a way, the one who looks, and I would add by faith, is the one who lives. It was their faith that was acceptable with God, and by looking upon the servant, their faith was shown. It was demonstrated. They knew that there was no virtue in the serpent itself. It was but a mere symbol of Christ. Now, of course, these Israelites wouldn't understand Jesus Christ like you and I understood, but they would understand this is what God's told Moses to do. Simple obedience. You're either going to look or you're not going to look. And the necessity of faith in his merits was thus presented to their minds. Heretofore, many had brought their offerings to God and had felt that in so doing, they were make, making ample atonement for their sins. They did not rely upon the Redeemer to come, of whom these offerings were only a type. The Lord would now teach them that their sacrifices in themselves had no more power or virtue than the serpent of brass, but were like that to lead their minds to Christ, the great sin offering. Take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we're going to go to chapter 3. Many stories in the Old Testament, you don't really understand the, the deep meaning of them. You might get a surface meaning but often there's a deeper meaning, and, and this passage is, is no exception. In the Gospel of John, we have a man called Nicodemus. A man who is supposed to know the ways of God. And so Jesus talks to him about being born again. You remember that? You must be born of water. You must be born of the Spirit. And on page 1650, in verses 14 and 15, he says, Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, that's that snake on that high, high pole, so high that everyone in the camp can see it. Maybe it was glittering in the sunlight. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? It's Jesus' favorite phrase for himself probably taken from Daniel, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have, will have, most certainly will have, eternal or everlasting life. And then in this book here that I'm 
mentioning, it goes on to say, all who have ever lived upon the earth have felt the de deadly sting of that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So the poison is now a representation, at least in her mind, of sin. So we've all been stung, not by real snakes, but we've all been stung by Satan and by sin. The fatal effects of sin can be removed only by the provision that God has made. The Israelites saved their lives by looking upon the uplifted serpent, and that look implied faith. They lived because they believed God's word and trusted in the means provided for their recovery. So the sinner may look to Christ and live. He receives pardon through faith in the atoning sacrifice. This is, this is before he does any sacrifices, any animals, if we were living in Moses' day, before he goes to to any tabernacle or synagogue or temple later in their history, before the believer has done anything except look, he has eternal life. Now, if you, don't, you and I don't feel comfortable with that, then we don't believe the gospel. We might think we believe the gospel, but we really don't believe the gospel. Because when the person does what God tells them to do, whether looking at a serpent in the wilderness or whether looking at Jesus Christ as the only one who can cure you of the poison of sin, then that person has, present tense, everlasting life. Do you believe that? That's the gospel. And that's why you can leave this room today and you can take a message that is so simple that little children can understand it if it's, if it's explained in a simple way. And people can literally find their way to God and have everlasting life. Of course, once a person believes and trusts, then everything else kicks in. Holy Spirit comes into their life and angels minister to them. God starts answering prayers and all sorts of wonderful things happen when they have this everlasting life. I'd like to close with an illustration. It's about one of the greatest preachers that's ever lived. He's a man called Spurgeon. He was an Englishman. I, have, I admit I'm a little biased there. But he was a very famous 19th century preacher. And here's Spurgeon as a teenager. I think he's 16 years of age in this illustration. Seems to fit in very well with what we have just uh, been speaking about. So he's on his way to church as a 16-year-old young man, and uh, it's snowing, so he can't make it to his own church, so he stops in a little Methodist chapel on the way. Probably never been in there before. There were about 12 or 15 people in there, the minister hadn't been able to make it because of the bad weather. And so at last, Spurgeon says, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be educated, but this man was really stupid. 
he was, he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. And the text was this. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your finger or your foot. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he in the broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father, but no. Look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, come and look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. And when he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present he knew that I was a stranger. And so just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all of my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I'd not become accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. And he continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Could you preach like that? Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. I saw at once the way of salvation. Now, this is a conversion of this 16-year-old man who went on to be the great preacher. I saw at once the way of salvation, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up. The people only looked, and they were healed, and so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. And that moment, I saw the sun. Looking unto Jesus. It sounds too simple. But it is the only way that sinners can have the poison of sin eradicated and can have the gift of everlasting life. 
one of the things that we have to learn as Seventh-day Adventists is to keep things simple. And I know there's no one worse than me who loves to probe and to dig and to examine things from different perspectives. And I'm always encouraging you to do that. But when it comes to sharing Jesus Christ in the marketplace, in your neighborhood, at work, wherever you are, you have to keep it really, really simple. So that anybody, man, woman, boy or girl, no matter what their intelligence is or is not, can find the way to Jesus Christ. Spurgeon, in my opinion, was a genius. He was way ahead of his time. But it's interesting how God converted a 16-year-old teenager in such a simple way through a lay preacher who after 10 minutes was finished. He had nothing more to say. But the Holy Spirit can take such simple things and use them to give everlasting life to an individual who looks and lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it's exciting to hear the different way the winds of the Spirit blow. How you could take such a bright young man and reach out to him in such a simple way. Thank you for that godly Methodist man who was willing to give his 10 minutes worth in that primitive Methodist church. And thank you, Lord, that there was one visitor, one guest there that day who the Spirit could take that simple message and drive it into his heart so that he could be born again and have everlasting life and be used by you, Lord, to bring many, many others to Jesus Christ. Lord, please use us as frail and as weak as we are. Sometimes we can't even spit the words out. We don't know what to say, but take our weakness, take our frailty, and use it to your honor and glory to bring other people to Jesus. And Lord, may we not just look once to Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews encourages, let's fix our gaze upon him in a daily way and enjoy the, the power and the presence of Almighty God by doing that. And Lord, may it not be long before Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven when we will look in a very special way at him and say, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. We've been patient. We've waited for him. And he has come to gather and to save his people. May that day come soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.